whenever my world falls apart I never lose hope or lose heart Whatever the form of the storm that may brew Not with you to lean on, darlings, you Hello and welcome to The Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. When Logan Colwell Block was here to talk about Little Shop of Horrors, we spent a lot of time talking about Alan Menken and Howard Ashman's career. And then we broke into a side conversation about the nature of collaboration, specifically among composers, but also in a broader sense. So here's that full conversation now about collaboration with Logan Colwell Block. We join the conversation already in progress. Dun dun, yeah. And, and I don't know if you know in. Smile, but there's like bajillions of them in Smile because Smile is this uh, just kind of never stopping, nonstop storytelling, mm-hmm. and so it has to, it has to keep going like mm-hmm. that. Well, it has. It's I, something I rediscovered also with Sheldon Harnick doing a lot, and Joe Mastroff in She Loves Me, which having just re- since it was just on PBS, we've been watching that a bunch in this house, and it's the way the songs flow in and out of the dialogue in that show is 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 remarkable. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely unbelievable that you have like a Broadway musical from the 60s that has, I don't know, what, 40 songs in it that average about a minute and a half long and they come seamlessly in and out of dialogue in a way. That's actually the thing that I, I wish people talked more about uh, in terms of the Sound of Music movie. The way they get yeah. in and out of songs mm-hmm. is so ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. The, it's better than the stage show. Oh, it's it way is, better. It is the, the, there is a clunkiness to the stage version of of Sound of Music, uh, which I have to say the the live TV broadcast did a pretty good job of pasting over some of the clunkier moments. Mm-hmm. On stage, there's some hard crashes, mainly because of set transitions like you get. It just gets very low. But I mean, part of that is like the way it uses the songs. But but um, I can't remember the lyrics, so this isn't going to be a great example. But the way they get into uh, favorite things, where she starts yep. listing things. Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens. Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens. Brown paper packages tied up with strings. These are a few of my favorite things. Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. So does it? I will say again. I'm always if if you if 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 there was a civil war, I'd be on the side of stage show versus movie version of everything. If you asked me to pick, but in terms of rearranging songs, I mean, Sound of Music. It's takes, way better. It's so it's 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 so amazing to me that Oscar Hammerstein, you know, one of the greatest, the father of of modern music theater in a lot of ways, or at least the grandfather, uh, looked at songs like Lonely Goat Herd and Favorite Things and um, went, oh yeah, that goes there. No, like, this goes. He doesn't here. write the book right. to Sound of Music, and it shows. Oh, that's true. That was oh, that, it's Lindsey Krauss. That's right. right. That that show started as a play, and right. then they ended up adding songs to it. Mm-hmm. And I would posit it shows. Yeah, wow, that's true. And then whoever I don't know who wrote the screenplay, obviously the the movie, but really went no, no, this goes here. It was that goes um, there. Ernest Lehman. Oh, okay. Which is doesn't get better. Yeah, so. and and even I, that is another movie where I like again, even though Hammerstein was dead at that point, the added. I, I think I have confidence is uh, one of the best added songs in a movie musical ever. For sure. Let them bring on all their problems. I'll do better than my best. I have confidence they'll put me to the test, but I'll make them see I have confidence in me. Somehow I will impress them. I will be firm but kind, and all those children. 
bless them, they will look up to me and mind me with each step I am more certain. Everything will turn out fine. I have confidence the world can all be mine. They'll have to agree I have confidence in me. Richard Rodgers isn't a bad lyricist. It's not a great one. No, and okay. actually, in general, Richard Rodgers is kind of a funny person to talk to when you talk about Alan Menken and Howard Ashman mm. in terms of collaborations. Because I say that because Rodgers is so different based on who he's mm-hmm. collaborating with. Oh my gosh, yeah. And I've always, I, I, I think he was a genius, and he's clearly one of those people that like felt music mm-hmm. exactly what it should be. And but. I would say he was the less dominant of his collaborations, certainly with Oscar Hammerstein. Yeah. And I think that's true of Ashman and Minkin, too. Yes. And Minkin, when he's at his best, when I say this as a piano player, like there's something about his music that it just feels right. It feels like a hug. Mm-hmm. I don't even know any other way to describe it. It all of his melodies sit perfect. The the lyrics sit perfect on his melodies. They sound like you would say them. They're great. He's so different when he works with other Because he didn't other do, he did Pocahontas, right? With Stephen Schwartz? Yeah. Is that correct? I yeah. think so. I know he did Hunchback. Okay, then yeah. And Hercules. Holy crap. Yeah, with David Zippel. With David Zippel. Okay. Um, See, when I think of Hercules, I always think of Phil Collins. But that's... <laughs> But a little that's, bit different. That's Tarzan, right? Yeah. Okay. No. Uh, but maybe Phil Collins sang the single. I think he's uh, 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 go the distance. Da, 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 yeah. yeah, go the distance. Yeah, but it is that you're you're. I think that's a very astute observation. That because it is true, you can pick out Rogers and Hart are different songs than Rogers and Hammerstein are different songs than Rogers by himself. And I mean, the anomaly score. That's one of the things that makes "Do I Hear a Waltz" to me such an interesting. I don't think it's a good score. I don't think it's, it's a, moments. It's his moments. Yeah, I would hope so. With Stephen mm-hmm. Sondheim and Rogers, I would hope there'd be a few songs who'd be like, "Yeah, that's a good song." Yeah, but as as a show, it feels very. It really feels like two people working together who don't want to be working with each other. And from all reports, that's that's pretty what accurate. it was. Yeah. yeah, it feels like a very strained collaboration, and it. I, you know, it it it. I think you're right. I think there's a symbiotic relationship that exists between the best composers and lyrics because it's something you don't find with like Andrew Lloyd Webber. No, you don't like. I think was it us that was talking about this on Twitter? Like Andrew, or no, it was David Levy. Andrew Weber is so weird in that way. Yeah, in that he is the he's the like famous person, right? Mm-hmm. And he, so he's the dominating force. He's the dominating force. Yeah, I don't know of any other collaboration offhand that is like that. But where you the composer who's not writing the words is the dominant, and it's why I think a lot of his shows have so many lyricists. Well, and it's also what I think that. One of the advantages to a long-standing collaboration is the give and take, because I've said plenty about Tim Rice and will in the future, but Tim Rice understands dramatic structure mm-hmm. in a way that Andrew Lloyd Webber does not, and I feel that when they broke up, and I'm still not clear to me, like they didn't really break up; they just stopped working with each other. Right. Um, it there was everybody that that. Lloyd Webber has worked with since, maybe with the exception of Don Black, has, I think, felt okay to push back against him. There's this sort of speculation I have when you're that famous, is that, you know, Tim Rice would walk into a collaboration with Andrew Lloyd Webber and be like, you know, we've been working together since we were idiots. Right, we're doing this wrong. We need to change this. Whereas, like, Richard, I don't know how much Richard Stilgo or, uh, I can't remember the guy's name who wrote 
most of the lyrics to Charles Richard Wright. Charles Hart. Charles Hart. There we go. Wrote most of the lyrics to Phantom. I love that you knew where I was going. I don't know. Good why job. I know these things. Um, <laughs> me too. It's a uh, he. It, it's that sense of like Andrew Lloyd Webber's going to write the music he's going to write, and the show's going to be the show it's going to be, and we're all just going to have to write the show around that that force. And because again, like say what you will about Lloyd Webber and Rice, the the three shows they wrote together are good shows and mm-hmm. they hold together dramatically very, very well. And I, I mean, and Tim Rice won a, a Tony for his book to Avina and I think he deserves it. That is a very well dramatically structured show, even though both you and I prefer the uh, studio recording. Mm-hmm. Which, which a, he also worked on. He did, but it's a weird thing to prefer that. But it wouldn't, <laughs> I think you said that on Twitter and I was I was going to respond. I went, you know what? No, actually, I prefer that. I prefer that too. We played the Buenos Aires from that recording at my wedding because that's just how I roll, Patrick. And all of my theater friends were like, what recording is this? Why isn't this Patty? I'm like, mm, look at what. Listen to those drums. They're really good. <laughs> certain to impress tell the driver this is where I'm staying hello Buenos Aires get this just look at me dressed up somewhere to go we'll put on a show take me in at your foot give me speed give me legs set me humming shoot me up with your blood wind me up with your nights watch me coming all I want is a whole lot of excess Tell the singer this is where I'm playing. Stand back, Buenos Aires. Because you want to know what you're going to get in me. Just a little touch of stock Leave me alone. <laughs> is it, I'm going to, is it Julie Covington? Yeah. Or, yes, okay. Who plays, um, who plays the mistress in Another Suitcase? Is it Barbara? Uh, I have no idea. It's, um. I think that's an album I've only ever owned digitally without liner notes oh my god it's a great it's a great album um i want that that's a vinyl that i really really want uh it's um whoever did it also played uh uh the svetlana in the chess studio recording um uh, it's not the woman who was the who was the original donna and mamma mia was it I it think she played been. the mistress, but she, it might have been I can't believe it. on I can't, the West End. I can't believe it. I can't come up with her name. Come on. Barbara Dixon. So oh, Barbara uh-huh. Dixon. That name sounds familiar. Um, what were you asking about that she was in? It's or not maybe... her, but oh, the, okay. the woman that did Mrs. Lovett in that off-Broadway Sweeney Todd that just happened in like the pie shop. Oh, yeah. No, that wasn't true. She, yeah. I think she had played the mistress... I want to say maybe like on, she was maybe the original on stage. In okay, that's very possible. And I, I know was she not was the Dixon. original Donna and Mamma Mia. Barbara Dixon was a, is, was a recording star. Right. That's why she was brought in to sing you know one song in the in mm-hmm. Evita production, um, and then brought back to sing one song in chess mm-hmm. <laughs> again with Elaine Page, Tim Rice's mistress at the time. The uh, which I just learned about. Fun fact: uh, she has an OBE. Barbara Dixon. It says here. What were we talking about, Logan? We got to Evita. Albums. And, oh, We're collaboration. collaboration. We're talking about collaboration. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. We started with Little Shop of Horrors. We went up on Barbara Dixon's Wikipedia page. And and it's just all in a day. Yeah, there is a... It, it's also that lost thing of like, I, I feel that... It, it's a weird sim- symbiotic relationship you have with collaborators. And it, it's a funny thing you also notice, I think, with Sondheim shows, depending on who's writing the book. Mm-hmm. His, his lyrics have different lilts. Like, you can kind of see lyric similarities between... Night music and Sweeney, 
and all of his history shows, obviously working with John Weidman or his James Lapine shows, like there's a certain vibe the book writer gives him. And of course, it's Sondheim, so we know that's very much on purpose. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, and that's the funniest thing about, I, I've, I've mentioned it before, I think I should probably just post it to the Facebook page. There's a great, um, I think it was on New York One in 76 with um, Frank Rich interviewing Sondheim and John Weidman about... Uh, Assassins? No, uh, 76, so the Pacific Oceans. Oh, Pacific Oceans. And um, cut they... Cut out that I thought Assassins was in 76. Absolutely. I didn't hear out. 76. Sorry. <laughs> Go on. And uh, it, it's mainly talking about someone in a trade. And they read the original scene that Weidman wrote that then Sondheim musicalized. And it is, I mean, not all... There's a lot of lyrics that are like straight out of that scene. If you find the Christopher Bond, Sweeney Todd, Worst Pies in London is almost word for word the monologue really from that point in the show oh yeah. wow it blew my mind and I, honestly like you would think oh you know he took from it or whatever but actually there's like a brilliance to be to taking a a prose monologue yes and turning it into and a musical song it. like that yeah yeah absolutely it's that is not i mean you could it is not theft obviously because everybody got credited and right. that's a that's what that's what collaboration is. Right. And that's all of sometimes book writers have been very clear about the fact that like, this is, this is what it is. Your best material goes away. Right. And that's the of it being a musical. It's a musical. Right. That's, that's the, as I said, when uh, James Finley was here talking about the life, you don't walk out of the theater wh- uh, whistling the book, Mm-mm. but it is that, that is, that's like, that's great to me. That is paying attention to your book writer. That is being like, Oh, that was good. This is worth keeping. This is where it's not like, I'm going to write my songs, you're going to write your words, and then we'll slam them together mm-hmm. a little later. Uh, and there is a danger in that, though, I think, of like a book writer and a lyricist being the same person, of getting too precious with one or the other. And I never think Ashman falls into that. He doesn't. He definitely, I mean, he was apparently... A, and he directed it. I mean, that's a that could, go on, that could have gone sideways in a lot of different and ways. And it did on Smile. Like, he was very mm-hmm. much a control freak from everything I read. Mm-hmm. And in most respects, actually, I think that's great because he clearly had such a... Um, His vision. A, a vision and understanding of what things need to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, when Ashman, uh, when Minkin talks about writing with him, it's like, I don't want that, I don't want that. That's what it is. Yeah. And he's right. Mm-hmm. Always. But... Uh, I know his first Broadway show, Smile. He was the director, book writer, lyricist, and I think it it's was. A lot of and hats. it was his first Broadway show. Yeah, it's a lot of hats. Yeah. I, I mean, being a writer director of a theatrical piece to me is problematic, always. I, of the debut. Uh huh. I've, I've said that before, and I. It's something like as a playwright, I never want. I never want to direct because I want that. I want the feedback. I want the feedback right. from somebody who has as much skin in the game as I do. It. It. it and. You know, producers are great, but you want it to be a director, at least in my case. And yeah, that there's a real, I get the impulse. I get it. It sort of happens with Arthur Lawrence, I think, a lot. Like one of the problems has is, is been said over and over again about Anyone Can Whistle was the book. And it seems from all accounts that during rehearsals, the book needed to be rewritten, but Lawrence just kept restaging because he didn't want to rewrite. And it's that like, no, I think if you'd had, I don't know who, let's say Jerry Robbins directing this, he would have made Lawrence go away and write more, and that would have been beneficial to to the whole production. Well, it's the beauty of theater, and specifically musical theater, of it's inherently collaborative. Yeah, which makes everybody better. There's uh, so many moving parts; it has to be because there's got to be an orchestrator, there's got to be a choreographer, and you can blend these jobs every now and again. But you well, know, and you know, I mean, I guess he won the lottery on Little Shop because 
Definitely, it can work. If you go watch his production at the archive, like it is very, it's exactly what is great about that show on an album. It's not over the top. It's like exactly where you want it to be. It's mm-hmm. not a bunch of physical comedy or crazy dance moves. It's like, it's, he directed it exactly like it should be. Yeah. But um, I think particularly with Broadway, there was uh, maybe some political things mm-hmm. that he was not prepared to. Sure. A lot more money. I mean, and a lot more money means a lot more opinions and a lot more people you have to smile at every now and again. And yeah. you're not willing to. That can be tricky. But it, it's the because it's not that it can't work. I don't want to say that. Like it, like the original Broadway production of Sunny in the Park with George is is, is a masterpiece. And sure. And everyone loves Into the Woods. too. Yeah, exactly right. And I think Into the Woods could have had a director. But the or maybe a co-director. I don't know. Oh, lips closed. on Logan's part. The but it is that funny thing of like. It happens a lot also with Hal Prince's stuff. Like you see producer-director even being a weird, amorphous kind of thing. Yeah, but aren't you glad that happened? Because like, do you think Follies would have happened if he was not the but producer he surrendered. director? He surrendered half the directing to Michael Bennett. I mean, he did take that, which is an amazing moment to me for him to be like... It's so funny that Follies, I think, contains both his most selfless and most selfish artistic moments. Surrendering direction partially to Michael Bennett is an amazing thing for him to do. And I think the correct decision. But of course, he was so... the. I don't remember what the thing was that he was mad at RCA about. Uh, he felt they under-promoted, I think, a movie he'd made, so he wouldn't give them the cast album to follow. No, and he took it, it, was, it was something about the company album. Was that what it was? Yeah, I, I just read it in his book. I can't remember what the specific story is. I'll have to look it up and send it to you. Well, no matter what happened, out of some kind of spite, he made the terrible decision to take the Follies cast recording to Capitol Records who slashed it and burned it basically and if it wasn't for the soundboard recording which you know I have and I'm not going to say how it is the you wouldn't have a complete recording of what is possibly the greatest musical of of that period one, one of the greatest original casts oh my god <laughs> I mean, it is a on. funny it's so like I actually this ties into our mutual friend Sidney Burgoyne um I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, we know no Sydney. My God, I just saw him the other day. Uh, he he said to me, we were talking. I remember we were talking about Follies, and he said to me, he said, he didn't see it, but everyone he knows who saw it said it was the greatest thing they ever saw. And it's one of those like to me, Follies is is a lot like um, what people always say about the Velvet Underground's first album. Like not many people bought it, but everybody who bought it formed a band. Like mm-hmm. everyone who saw Follies or was touched by Follies got into the business because it's so amazing. He talks about and in, in Hal Prince talks about in his memoir that at the time there was apparently like a contingent of people that were writing into the New York Times trying to create this like campaign to have a complete recording of Follies recorded that would be like a limited edition like Christian mm-hmm. Land does now or whatever. Sure. But I'm just like, God bless you people because I would have been right there <laughs> with you if I had just been alive. Why can you imagine the double LP Thomas Shepard produced version <sighs> of, of Follies? I mean, it's absolutely incredible. <laughs> The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at OriginalCastPod. You can follow me on Twitter at UnknownPenguin. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts from the convenience of your iPhone and or check out the original cast on Stitcher if that's how you get down. My thanks to Logan Colwell Block for coming down and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. (laughs) 